in preparation for Susie to open the scriptures this morning, let me read from Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. know this, but we have a fabulous youth pastor right here, Allison Matzenbacher, and uh, she and her husband Taylor, uh, yes, so great, they lead the junior and senior high ministry here at Platte Park, and uh, my kids are only four and six, but when I think about the kind of people who I would want to be investing in my kids when they are in that age range, Allison and Taylor are totally those people. And uh, some of our best stories in staff meeting every week come from this lady right here. And uh, just so grateful to be, uh, it's just a pleasure to be serving Christ together with Allison. Uh, but we were on a staff retreat, staff and elders together. We do this uh, once a year, a couple weeks ago. And Allison shared something on that retreat that resonated so much, it's become kind of part of our language as a team, and we just loved this story. And so I asked her if she would share it with you all this morning. So do you want to tell everybody what you told us on the staff retreat? And here, I got you this little chair. Yes, if you'd perfect. Like to sit down you guys now. don't mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> perfect size. Uh, well, I had shared on this retreat um, something from my sort of past growing up, my youth group when I was young, um, when I was in high school, would go on missions trips um, every year, like a lot do. And after a while, we had established this relationship with a camp in France, um, a Christian camp where uh, French teens would come and spend a couple weeks there. And so we started going there for our missions trip, um, which was wonderful. But the thing about it was it wasn't like your typical missions trip where we weren't really doing any service projects. We weren't building anything. We weren't painting things, you know, demoing things. So we kind of had to figure out what are we doing here? <laughs> What's our purpose here? Um, There's some people like, that's my kind of mission trip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beautiful camp up? in the middle of France. southern France. Oh, really, yeah. you know, Rough. working for God. Uh, <laughs> 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 but what we had come up with as a group um, of Americans was we had sort of dubbed this term motivated campers. And what motivated campers meant to us was that if there was something that needed to be done, we were the ones to offer to do it. If 
they needed volunteers. Our hands were the first ones in the air, um, even down to just singing the loudest or screaming the loudest during games, um, just being intentional about our time there and um, hoping through that to make that camp environment for the French teenagers just that much more meaningful and enjoyable. Um, so what was really impactful about that was that we started seeing that some of the older French students who had been to this camp year after year actually started embracing this motivated camper mentality. Um, so it kind of started spreading a bit and they were really reaching out to the younger students who came um, and just kind of continuing that intentionality with them. So kind of became infectious and it was really neat to see. So. I love that. <laughs> and we just all loved that when she shared that story. And so this message the sermon this morning, uh, we're calling it Motivated Camper, so thank you for that. And I just thought you could preach it better than me, so. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to leave this one up to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Allison. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, in our passage this morning that Tim just read from Isaiah 6, you could say Isaiah was a motivated camper. And he is the prophet who, when God called him, he said, here I am, send me. He had an eager response to serve when God asked him to. Now, that is different than Moses. When God called Moses, Moses said, here I am, can you send somebody else? It's different than Jonah. When Jonah was called, Jonah said, here I am, and I'm not going. So Isaiah is like this motivated camera. He, is, he says, here I am, send me. So where's kind of going to look at this passage today and ask the question, what sort of preceded the person who would say with wholeheartedness, God, I'm available. I'm available to just spread your ridiculous love however and wherever you would want. And uh, today is the last day of our Living is Giving uh, series. So motivated campers, first of all, see who God is and not who they want God to be. So in this passage, it begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, he says, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now to illustrate what's happening here, I'm going to give you um, a couple of different dates and locations, and I just want you to see kind of what comes to your mind when you hear these. Okay, first one. Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, 1963. Memphis, Tennessee, April 4th, 1968. New York City, September 11th, 2001. A place, a date. Often, when something happens, when things are coming apart at the seams, a place and a date become significant to us. That is not just true for us today. That is true of the ancients as well. So when this passage begins, that is essentially what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying the place Judah, the time, the year that King Uzziah died, now, that may not mean very much to you and I, but it meant a great deal to the Israelites at that time because they were coming out of a period of great prosperity. And now suddenly the king, who has kind of kept the wheels of commerce greased, 
He has kept the walls of security strong. That king is either dying or has died of leprosy. King Uzziah, in the year King Uzziah died. So, of course, everybody is now wondering, what's next? Like, what's going to happen now that King Uzziah has died? And in the opening verses of this, this famous prophet, just finds himself standing in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple in Jerusalem at that time was the greatest man-made structure on planet Earth. So you can just imagine Isaiah walking into the temple and looking at these massive beams like the redwoods. The ceiling is painted gold, and he's like under the canopy of this incredible sky in the temple. This is an awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, amazing structure. And Isaiah walks in, and he's like, this is big. But then he sees something even bigger. And you can just imagine Isaiah like, whoa, the temple, but then falling to his knees as he sees these seraphim flying around. The Bible says they have six wings in this. As Isaiah is explaining this, he, he says six different wings. With two, they covered their uh, three different pairs. So covering their feet, their faces, and then a third pair for flying around. And they're singing this thunderous sound. And at the sound of their voices, the temple is trembling. And Isaiah's wondering, is it going to crack? Is it going to cave? So there's this huge structure, the temple. There's the, these seraphim flying around, takes him to his knees. But then something happens that sends Isaiah from the place on his knees, like flat down onto his face in total terror. Because he starts to understand that the, these awesome angelic beings are covering themselves almost in like a desperate humility. That they're the most amazing creatures he has ever seen or ever contemplated. And yet, they are trembling themselves in the presence of someone even greater. So he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and just the train of his robe filled the temple. Like at the tiniest glimpse of the littlest edge, the train of his robe, they erupt in song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. It's like the temple is amazing. These Angelic seraphim, amazing. But those compared to God can't even compare. So when we say God is holy, we mean set apart, totally other, unlike us, beyond our ability to comprehend. So we just sing about that. Like you have no rival, you have no equal. What a powerful name. Whoa. <laughs> what a powerful name it is. Like we just sang about that. When we come together in worship, we are saying, like, death could not hold you. We're remembering as we worship the bigness, the vastness, the total otherness of God. Like, if death could not hold you, 
What does that do? Putting in perspective the divisiveness I'm living in, the divorce that I went through, the depression that I'm struggling, all of the things that we deal with. Death could not hold you. You are that big. You are that powerful. A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Have you ever asked yourself, what comes into my mind when I think about God? There's this amazing scene in the old movie Jurassic Park where the guy who's studying dinosaurs and has been digging up the fossils and looking at the bones encounters a dinosaur for the first time, just takes him to his knees. Because it's one thing to be studying fossils and bones. It's another thing altogether to have an encounter with a dinosaur. The same could be true of our relationship, said, same thing could be said of our relationship with God. Sometimes spirituality for people can become about rehearsing old stories of people's encounters with God in the past. And that's one thing. But that's nothing like experiencing and encountering God for yourself today. A.W. Tozer says this in the Knowledge of the Holy, God is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect in righteousness, purity, and rectitude. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by simply thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness in the sense of absolute health, he cannot even imagine. Only the spirit of the Holy One can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the holy. That is why we can never divorce mystery from faith. And the opposite of faith, it's been said, is not doubt, it's certainty. There is an element, and we see this with Isaiah here, in this vision, God is totally other. Awe-inspiring, bigger than any, the biggest thing we can comprehend. So the very first thing when you say, like, what makes a motivated camper who would say, here am I, send me? The first thing is, they have seen God for who God is, not for who they want God to be. And then, once Isaiah sees God for who God is, then the second thing is he sees himself for who he is. He says, woe to me. I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Like the natural response to someone who catches such a glimpse of God is to fall on their face, terrified. 
in awe. Isaiah's response is appropriate. Like to find yourself in the presence of a holy God and having trusted in your own goodness and your own righteousness and your own efficiencies and dignity, that is like (laughs) being a disease-carrying insect and coming upon like someone who hates disease but not insects. It's like, whoa. I'm just just like, I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. It's interesting. The Bible, um, the scriptures underline that the response of a holy God to sin is not sometimes how we think, like sin, uh, God probably just shrugs about it. The scriptures don't teach that. The response of a holy God to sin is not like an indulgent wink, wink, Actually, over and over through the scriptures, what we see is the response of a holy God to sin is wrath. Now, most of us, when you hear the phrase, the wrath of God, you're like looking to change the channel or where's the closest exit. But track with me for just a moment here as we think about that. Sometimes we will, you know, want to think, oh, that's just the Old Testament prophets who talk about the wrath of God. But listen to these words of Jesus himself. I tell you that you will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted. By your words you will be condemned. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. How dreadful it will be in those days. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. Whoa! Jesus, whoa. Author James Bryan Smith helps us wrap our heads around this idea of the wrath of God. He says this, in the same way that God's love is not silly, sappy feeling, but rather a consistent desire for the good of his people, so also the wrath of God is not a crazed rage but rather a consistent opposition to sin and evil. It's a mindful, objective, rational response. God is not indecisive when it comes to evil. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. God is against my sin because he is for me. We just sang about it. You're My sin is great. Your love is greater. What can separate us now? Like that's a song that expresses the same spirit of what Isaiah said. My sin is great, but your love is greater. You know, Isaiah just falls on his face in confession. And historically, you could probably say Protestants have not been the strongest in a theology of confession. But there is power that comes from a person who has seen God for who God is, seen themselves for who they are, fallen on their face in confession, and then been touched, healed, purified, cleansed. Do you know what that is? That is finally free. That is a person who is finally free. One of the ways I think we have gotten confession wrong is in generalizing sin. 
So you will hear someone stand up, a pastor maybe, and she'll say, I had a moral failure, kind of generalizing, or you'll hear ministry leader stand up and, and um, confess to sexual sin, but you'll hear the story, and it's really more about abuse of power. We've gotten confession wrong when we have generalized sin and not been specific. Isaiah, there's a specificity to the confession. He sees who God is, and he's like, I got a dirty mouth. It is specific. It is like, I see who I am in light of who you are. And true confession is specific. Specificity is needed if we're to do the deep, transforming work of confession and change. Isaiah's conviction, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And then what happens is he doesn't stay there, but the seraphim come with a hot coal and touch his lips. And that's the next sort of phase of a person who becomes a motivated camper. It's not just, oh, I realize I'm a sinner and I stay there and I feel terrible about myself. It's the person who receives God's cleansing and forgiveness. My sin is great. Your love is greater. What can separate us now? It's like so different than how we often think about our shortcomings. Our world would say like, oh, you got some shortcomings? Like, oh, go take, you know, a seminar for the weekend and kind of work out a plan to get over that. But the scriptures in Christian history would teach something different. Finding a spiritual friendship where confession can happen. Finding a spiritual director where confession can happen. So that the transforming, deep work of specific acknowledgement around my sin and then receiving God's grace and forgiveness can happen in my life. Motivated campers say, I will embrace who I am in Christ. Here Isaiah says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, the very specific place, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Like once we're convicted of our sins and confess them, God automatically and fully comes in and cleanses us of our sin. Isaiah had that particular need. God came and met him right there. And that is the kind of self-identity that a follower of Christ is to have. And think about that. My sin is great, so great. Jesus had to die. Like that reality just keeps me from egocentricity. That just keeps me from any sense of superiority. My sin was so great, he had to die. On the other hand, there's no room for inferiority because he was willing to come and die for me. Like that lifts you. That gives you a kind of a worth that cannot be taken away. No matter what's happening in your life, that sort of worth in being the one he was willing to die for can never be taken away. Even when your job tanks, your marriage ends, your children are going off the rails, 
there is a strength of self-identity and personhood in Christ unlike anywhere else. It's the best reality that we could ever live in. There's a John Flavel, an old Puritan writer, used to say this, you cannot think highly of God and yourself at the same time. There's so many messages in our world, like think highly of yourself, you're great, you're awesome, you're amazing, look it up. But actually, Isaiah would teach us to begin with God's greatness and to see ourselves in light of that starting point. It's not, I'm great, now I'm going to fit in my, like, what does Jesus have to say? No, it starts with our view of God. That's why the most important thing about a person is what they think when they think of God. And then lastly, motivated campers, they, like Isaiah, say, I will step into where God's calling me. Like, here I am. Send me. Because they've seen God. They've seen themselves. They've fallen on their faces. They've experienced that touch. And the only natural response is, here I am. Send me. I want to be on mission with you. I want to receive your call to spread the ridiculous love of God wherever I am, in my home, in my work, in my neighborhood, wherever that may be. A Christian who does not participate in the mission of God may not be a Christian or may have such a small view of God, may believe nominally, but not really understand the magnitude and the depth of what God has done and desires to do through them. It's interesting in this passage, um, Yahweh says, who will go for us? Who will go for us? So interesting. Isaiah's like, here I am, send me. Who will go for us? almost like you could think of it this way. When someone volunteers to rock a baby in the church nursery and prays over that child, maybe for the first time ever in that child's life, they are going for God, not in the sense of doing good works for God, not in that regard, but just showing up as an incarnational presence. Here I am. Send me. When you invite a refugee family that you meet through work or through a friend into your home, it's the incarnational presence of Jesus. When you welcome a foster child in your home, when you, when you show up in your work and you say, here I am, send me, what you are doing is, God is so great. In light of God's great, in greatness, in light of what he's done in my life, I'm just available. Living is giving because life, like living, real living in the kingdom, kingdom living, is giving. That's where real life, true life is found. And when I uh, just think about that, I don't know about you, but it, it's like, I want to be a part of that. I want to keep seeing God for who God is. I want to keep seeing myself where I am and experiencing the transformation that can only come through the door of confession and forgiveness. And then stepping into where God is calling me in my home, in my work, in my neighborhood. 
I took a gap year uh, after high school before college, and I went to a little Bible school up in Estes Park called Ravencrest. And Ravencrest is uh, a part of a larger network called Torchbearers. And the founder of Torchbearers, I, I got to hear him speak before he died. He was a major, Major Ian Thomas. He was a major in World War II. And I remember he talked about how it took Moses 40 years in the wilderness to learn that he was nothing. And then one day, Moses is confronted with this burning bush. And really, the burning bush, it's just an ugly, dry pile of sticks. But when Moses encounters this burning bush, what does he do? He takes off his sandals because it's holy ground. It's just a, it's just a pile of sticks. It's just a dead bunch of sticks. Why did he see that moment as holy? Because God was in the bush. And I just remember Major Ian Thomas saying, God was telling Moses, I don't need a pretty bush. I don't need an eloquent bush. I don't need an educated bush like any old bush will do if God is in the bush. That's true for you and I. You don't need to be the most educated. You don't need to be the most eloquent. You don't need to be the most specially trained. And any old bush will do if God is in the bush. And that's what living is giving is really all about. It's our saying, I want to live with a posture that says, I'm going to enter my relationships. I'm going to enter my, rela my environments with the question, what can I give here rather than what can I get here? I'm going to enter my relationships and I'm going to enter my environments with a motivated camper mentality that just says, God, you are this big and I've seen that and you've touched my life and here I, I'm available. I'm available to serve wherever you would need, however you would need. I'm going to listen for your voice here. So as we wrap up this series, um, I'm going to invite Charlie and Tamara and the band to come up and they've prepared a song that's just a wrap up for this series. And... Uh, you know, we don't do this kind of thing very often, but if it would be meaningful to you today, while you're just listening to this song, you, you are welcome to just listen to the song and take it in and use it as a time of prayer and reflection. But if it would be meaningful to you at the end here of this series, maybe you just, as you're praying, want to uh, listen to the song and any point in the song just stand up. And in doing so, let that be sort of your declaration here I am, God, send me. Or, God, I don't have that desire in me, but I want that desire, and I know you could put it in me. So in standing, I want you to place your desire in me. If that would be meaningful to kind of just at the end of the series, like, I want to be a giver, not a taker. I want to live my life with a, every inhale's a gift, every exhale is a gift gift offered back. Here I am. Send me. If that would be meaningful, any time in the song, just stand up, and then we're going to come to communion after the song. Um, but let's pray together as we close. <coughs> holy, holy, holy are you Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. And woe are we people of unclean lips who live among a people with unclean lips. 
But, oh, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for sending Jesus, for touching us with that hole that heals, cleanses, forgives, purifies, and finally sets us free. And all we can say, in light of who you are, and in light of what you've done, is here we are. Send us into our marriages, into our homes, into our workplaces, just as conduits of your love and grace in this broken and hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen.